This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back, everybody. I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on the New Books and Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. I am so excited to interview um, one of my favorite poets. I just discovered her already. I want more, more things, more of the things uh, from Catherine Gaffney. We're actually uh, pressmates. Both of our first chapbooks were published by Finishing Line Press. Um, and I'm going to uh, read her whole bio now here for you all. And then we're going to jump right into a discussion about her new book. So Catherine Gaffney completed her MFA at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and is currently working on her PhD at the University of Southern Mississippi. <clears throat> her work has previously appeared or is forthcoming in Best New Poets, Jubilat, Harper Pollitt, Mississippi Review, Meridian, and elsewhere. She has attended Tin House's Summer Writing Workshop in 2014, Sundress's public Publications SAFTA Residency in 2021, and was a scholar at the Sewanee Writers Conference 2022. Not going to lie, a little jealous. Her first chapbook, Once, Re- Once Read as Ruin, was published by Finishing Line Press, and her first full-length collection, Fool in a Blue House, won the 2022 Tampa Review Prize for Poetry. She lives and teaches in Champaign, Illinois. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Catherine. I'm so excited to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. It feels so cool to talk about this book with a press mate for like part of this book is definitely involved in um, One Thread is Ruined. So it feels nice to kind of have that companionship for sure. Love it. Yes. I love the overlap too. My chapbook and my first collection also overlap a little bit. Um, Not intentionally, but I feel like there's a lot of unintentional things that happen in writing that are really cool. Um, which we'll probably get to uh, as we talk here. So I want to, there's so much in this book that I related to that I had this several moments back to back where I was like, I've had that feeling my whole life. These are the words. And and I am a writer. So that was pretty amazing. Um, let's start with what your inspiration for this collection was. Oh gosh. Um, so this collection um, was 
not entirely, but largely written during my MFA um, at uh, Urbana-Champagne. And I remember my first year, um, one of my mentors, Janice Harrington, asking me um, what I was going to write for my thesis. And um, I, I was just like, I don't am I allowed to cuss? Like, I don't fucking know. Like I, I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, and I, I don't know, I was just kind of like flailing around writing poems. And, um, I, I think in some ways that's like a good thing. Cause like, I think this book is like about finding a voice in some way. Um, and, but, but otherwise I think also like where this book, uh, was born from was, um, being in my MFA was also the first time I like um, co um, domesticated with a partner or, or cohabitated, I should say, with a partner. Um, and, you know, was working to kind of triangulate those relationships between family, romance, domestic space, which obviously intersect with family and with um, romances often, although not strictly, obviously, because you can have other kinds of companionship and, and cohabitating. Um, but that was the triangle I was dealing with at that point, transitioning away from, um, you know, growing up with a family that you, um, or that in my case, particularly, I can't speak for everyone that cohabitated with for so many years. And it just felt like so many power dynamics and um, so many things to, to wade through. And so I think that kind of flailing and then cohabitation are sort of the two major inspirations for the book. Yes, totally. Um, it seems um, there the collection seems to revolve around or maybe the word I want to use is haunt, seems to be haunted by um, uh, this the house concept of house and then an actual blue house um, that pops up in so many ways, I'm fascinated by this. Um, and without giving too much away, uh, tell me about this, this blue house, however much you want. Sure. Yeah. So the blue house is very real. Um, I moved back to Champaign, um, just this year to take a, a lectureship, um, at university of Illinois and I live like a, a 10 minute walk from it. And so I, I walk by it when I walk my dogs kind of thing. Um, yeah, but it's, it's this very small, like, I say very small. I, I feel a luxury having lived there during graduate school, but like two bedroom, one bath, um, like about 790 square foot in terms of like fully finished house under, uh, under air. Um, and it's, you know, in, in some poems, I think I refer to it in this book as well as like a salt box house. It was, you know, very, you know, kind of squatty and structured and single story. And, um, and it, and it's sort of, um, magical and also, a uh, difficult space, but I think difficult in relation to growth, um, not just in terms of like, I don't want to like make it a tragic space in any way, um, but but there's certain a sense of it as like asserting a kind of pressure that allows for these relationships to find conflict, but also like move beyond those sense of conflict by, I think, largely breaking the the claustrophobic sense of the domestic, right? Like I, the book very much wants to kind of reclaim the domestic as um, productive and beneficial. And, you know, I don't think I realized it when writing this book, but I've come to like get involved with um, kind of romanticism um, research and, and scholarship. And I think um, I follow kind of in the footsteps of Dorothy Wordsworth, who I think in a lot of her journals um, was working to reclaim the domestic as not strictly something that was a relegation to women or something that was a, a sense of punishment or, or diminishment, but instead a space of, of creative energy um, and rebirth. Um, and so I think that's also where the book is, is trying to reclaim this blue house as something more than strictly domestic. That was one of my favorite themes about this entire collection is that, um, yeah, the domestic doesn't have to be this tragic entrapment. It can actually be 
a sense of of power and of 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 identity in a way that I think we've kind of lost in our culture. Um, not that any one particular person is to blame for that, but just kind of pushing back on that tidal wave of rejection of that um, actually really made me feel kind of at home. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a it's kind of a character in and of itself, I think, and it's a complicated one, but not in a way that I pitied it or I was like, I want to go to this house. Like, <laughs> I feel like I should. I, but then I was like, oh, but I can because I can just read the poems again. Um, <laughs> so. Um, so there's so there's that whole thing. There's other characters in here that uh, appear that are uh, that are surprising to me in such interesting ways. Uh, there's animals that crawl throughout here, like there's dogs and stuff, and then there's cows. <laughs> How about the cows? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, so some of the cows are are born from honestly um, these like fever dreams my partner would have. I think during. Um, the time at the time when we were living together during my graduate program, he was working in the food industry um, and uh, high pressure, high stress environment. And he would have these just like wild dreams where he was like, you know, like as one can have, as one can, you know, kind of endure when dealing with stress and dreams kind of being a manifestation of it, like having these uh, very intense one-sided conversations um, out loud and, um, you know, the cows sort of stem from that. Um, I think, you know, horses are also relevant, right, to the collection. Um, and so I think also the livestock, just to bundle them together a little bit more, um, stem from my my own childhood of growing up riding horses, um, which I think um, is a really big space of also like a, a note of empowerment, right? Like being able to work with these animals that are so much larger than us um, is a, a relationship with animals that is pretty rare unless you're like into like zookeeping, right? Cause like livestock is like largely the largest animals we're interacting with in a domesticated sense, right? And obviously zookeeping is not domestication. So I don't want to like miss, um, you know, miss uh, indicate that relationship. Um, but it is a, a sense of, of um, and I don't want to say power in a sense of like domineering or control or anything like that, but there is this unusual sense of, holy crap, like, wow, I can commune with this, this animal, um, in a way that feels very different than, um, other domesticated animals like dogs and cats, um, and rabbits, which are also in, in the collection as well. Totally. That's why that stood out to me is like, it's kind of common to see cats and dogs crawl throughout poetry. Um, I have two cats myself, but it is, is a totally different relationship that one has with a horse um i grew up riding horses as well and and that's why that comment was like yeah because really if if everything were just about power which it's not but if we were to boil everything down to power well horses have way more power than humans yeah and, absolutely yeah. yeah totally they could kill a human in in an instant probably and i've always wondered like do they know that and they're holding back or do they not know? Because horses are extremely intuitive animals and so intuitive that they will magnify whatever emotion you have. Um, cats and dogs aren't really like that. And I think, I think so that's something I've thought a lot about and actually the, the critical introduction I wrote for a much earlier version of this book that um, I turned in for my thesis, which is not quite um, full in a blue house. It was originally called No One Thought of Birds, which is a poem that's no longer in the collection. Um, and and it kind of got um, 
there were concerns about that title, even though it was negating birds, that birds are such a poemy thing that people were like, oh no, this title might get passed over because it has birds in it and birds are poemy. Um, but anyway, I, I think, I mean, I think the collection thinks about animals as particularly like intuitive and um, responsive to um, humans and one another in a way that humans have, I think, lost awareness with. And maybe some of that is language itself has um kind of stood in for some of that um some of that manner in which animals do commune with one another because we have this kind of conduit um that eclipses that need for this kind of maybe more nebulous way that we see animals communicate with one another um but we don't yet we don't fully understand because we have this language that kind of like distances ourselves from that um but i think with animals or with um sorry, with horses particularly, um, the, the thing I think about a lot, because it's, it's hard to tell people, and I'm sure you understand this being a horse rider yourself, how different communication relationships are with horses. It's so much more tactile and physical. Um, whereas with dogs and, and even with cats, right, we're like trying to replicate language in order to train them, like sit as like a command or, you know, whatever like physical gesture you use, you're using gestures often to communicate with these animals. Whereas with horses, um, maybe this is less related to, to cattle. I, I don't have quite as much experience with cattle or with cows, but, um, with horses, it's so tactile, so bodily. Um, and I think that's where horses perhaps more than cows play into the collection because there is this tactility, this intimacy, um, that I think tracks onto the intimate partnership. Um, there is this something like certain sensuality that comes with horse riding that intersects with communing with a, a, a loved one, well, any loved one, not just a sexual relationship, but perhaps particularly a sexual relationship. Totally. Yeah. Communicating with horses is completely an embodied experience. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they respond to voices, but they were even that they I feel they respond very differently than than dogs and in cats if cats respond at all to voices which <laughs> you know their choice they do yeah. what they want. um but it's it was and that yeah that's just that's just that was that's brilliant language is a stand-in and almost a distancer for the kind of intimacy that one mm. can have with, with horses I would say uh, I mean there's few other animals like that dolphins maybe um mm -hmm. i mean i've only swam with dolphins once but uh that felt very very similar um mm -hmm. yeah i just that, gosh that was i'm gonna have to go back and listen to that again myself um, <laughs> uh, um i know we're, we're talking about specters throughout this uh collection we will get to specifics here i've, I've written down so many good lines from so many good poems um but one final Wow, excuse me, one final um, specter here that I've noticed. Uh, I mean, there's so many, but one that I would love to talk about. It's kind of whispered, like more than stated outright, is um, disability. And I also know that you've done some work in disability studies. So um, I, I would love to kind of hear how the concept of disability, as well as as your studies and disabilities, ha have impacted this this collection like individual poems or just at the collection as a whole yeah so I, I will admit when I wrote this collection um I wasn't as entrenched in disability studies as I am now right but I think um I remember talking with um my my mentor in disability studies um Dr. Emily Stanback um who particularly focuses on intersections between romanticism and disability studies which is where like the Dorothy Wordsworth stuff um I mentioned earlier kind of um 
came into my life, right? Um, but I didn't really know what I was getting into. It was like my first semester of my PhD program at Southern Miss. And um, I think toward the end of the semester, I started to realize like why I gravitated toward it so much, um, which um, in terms of specific poems, um, some of these poems do deal with um, my own um, siblings' um, struggles with addiction. Um, and, um, you know, addiction can be a... a body inclusion and disability, right? Um, some people don't always want to include it and that's not me like throwing any shade, um, but it's it's just on the fringes of disability. And I think only increasingly becoming a part of the disability conversation. Um, but I was actually just having a, a conversation with a, a dear, dear friend um, about this earlier and how um, addiction, particularly in, a, in a, I think a different way than other disability, but comes to kind of impact the family in like these reverberal, ways. And I think that's where um, some of these poems are trying to track that, um, that experience of, um, there's, there's one poem called Playing Patience um, that deals with our mother um, looking for him um, after he'd been gone for, for days on end, um, the details of which, uh, you know, the time we didn't know and, and still feels a bit like a puzzle um, for us. Um, so, those are the ways I think disability most autobiographically play in. But then I think the like romantic um, conceptions of disability, I don't want to say definitions because disability in our common vernacular didn't like exist in that time period. But I think the idea of the fragment um, comes into play a lot aesthetically in this book um, and kind of the idea of um, chronic injury um, definitely come into play, particularly with um, the horses in Once Red is Ruined, um, which is the namesake for the chat book, which has some of these poems kind of as well um, in the chat. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm not like answering that question quite as effectively as I possibly could because I think it's definitely like a quieter specter than other specters in the book for sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I feel like it was whispered and it was, um, I don't know if other, like I was, I'm already kind of in tune with disability, disability studies, that kind of thing. So I don't know uh, if I just happened to pick up on it because I, I'm not like looking for it, but I was like, ah, yeah, I know this concept. Ah, this has come up before. I don't know that others would, but I wanted to call that out because I feel like it is a way, the understatedness of it is actually a way of communicating seenness to people with disability because there's a lot of times, especially with invisible disability, that um, there is this like veil, like people just don't, it's invisible. People don't see it. And then they don't accept it when they do see it. They're like, well, like the question of, how disabled do you have to be outwardly to count as someone who has a disability? And so I think that the the way that that played in was like, oh yeah, this this actually is the way the relationship of disability appears in this collection is a similar way that I think people experience their disability in relation to the world. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think too, like where um, maybe it's quietude and, and you know, perhaps this is a critique of the book, but the way it's quietude, um, particularly in relation to kind of the quiet addiction narrative, again, like recalibrating relationships with family is sort of where I see that narrative um, coming in. Um, but addiction has its um, complications of disability because there's this question of fault, um, which I reject pretty hard because um, I don't think it's a question of fault. I think it's um, a disability like any other visible or invisible, um, but it gets demonized in a certain way that it doesn't get seen or accepted as disability the same way other um, more visible or um, 
I don't know, like there's a sense of like purity that doesn't apply to addiction, which is like really fucked up. Um, but that, that sort of, I think, um, the book is, is trying to, um, I don't think it's trying to wrestle with it head on, but it's, it's, um, aware of itself, um, in those, in those poems dealing with the, the sibling. Um, yeah. And, and just, I think that latter part of your question asked about like my work more broadly in disability. Um, yeah, I, I've, um, I'm, working to publish um uh my first scholarly article um as a poet that's a big transition for me <laughs> but um, i presented um kind of like the baby steps um toward um uh speaking of cats um inter intersecting conversations um um i have presented on um mental health related disability and mary wollstonecraft i have um presented on um Dorothy Wordsworth, not as much directly in relation to disability, but more in relation to kind of like the way she reclaimed the domestic in a period where like Sarah Coleridge um, and um, other uh, female writers at the time were really rejecting the domestic because in, in their conception, it was like interfering with their craft. Um, and then I've also presented on William Wordsworth and his um, uh, lyrical ballads, which um, a lot of disability scholars contemporarily argue is working to theorize marginal and disabled figures um, before we had the kind of like modern conception of disability. So that's and that's sort of like writ large what my involvement with disability studies is. I would say it's very baby steps, um, but it's a, a field I am excited to continue to pursue um, intellectually. Yeah. Oh man, I love that. I uh, please tell me when you write more books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that you can that you can come back um what is your phd on i feel like i actually should have asked you that question already <laughs> no it, it's a creative writing um uh well english with a creative writing emphasis i think is technically what the department um calls it but um so more just to like distinguish it from the mfa it's a little more literature scholarship hmm. hefty but it'll still be, um, which I was working on before we hopped on, um, it'll still be like a creative dissertation with a critical introduction rather than a monograph um, thinking about, yeah. So that's that's what my PhD is in. Oh, I love it. I love uh, it. Yeah, so I don't have it yet, to be clear. I'm still right. defending, <laughs> still defending in the spring. <laughs> gosh, in the spring. Okay, so you're like closing in then. Yeah, closing in. Oh, gosh. Well, I... <laughs> I know that every ounce of um, PhD candidates time is valuable. So I feel even more honored that you would come <laughs> on this podcast and talk about this, uh, this wonderful collection here that just has so many facets. It's like, uh, there's, and I know that um, a poem doesn't mean anything that you want it to mean, but there's, I think a shared meaning making between the reader and the writer in a lot of ways. And I think poetry gives itself to that more than than prose um and and so i have there's so many lines that jumped out at me um there's and and i think actually uh there's this negotiation of relationships theme that has come up in our conversation um and this is in the uh the titular poem or in like a like a salmon or fool in a blue house uh you pretty clearly talk about negotiating relationships and how they're not like chess um when where the pieces don't move when when left alone <laughs> i love that so much i was like that is it that's one of those um moments that you capture in words for me that i just had felt like i come you know with a relationship you you cannot leave it alone and have it be the same and like the first time i experienced that in life i was like what the like this is really <laughs> unfair i didn't do anything and it's like yes 
And that's the problem. Mm. Um, so I want to talk about like, what do you think like moves relationships and what moves in relationships, like kind of apart from our intentionality? Cause I loved that naming. They're not like chess. You cannot leave the pieces on the board and expect them to be in the same place. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think perhaps not like, I'm not someone who's like super involved with like the Zodiac um, and like, don't ask me rising or I forget the other one. Um, Cause I don't know any of those things, but like, I do think they're like, I feel some affinity with the ways um, like Pisces, that's my, that's my sign are. Um, oh, okay. March baby. I was supposed to be born in March. I was born end of February. February. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so I feel the affinity with like the ways like Pisces are described as like dreamers and like, like idealists and like, Yes. <laughs> really always rooted to reality. And like, so I think <laughs> in, like early conceptions of like relationships, I think like I had this idea, like we could will them to, to be in some way. And like, but like, these are autonomous beings. And I know, and, and I know this sounds like really silly and, and like realizing this later, I'm like, what the hell were you thinking? Like, these are people, these are not dolls. Like these are not like chess pieces. But like, I think I thought like, I could like craft like with intention, like craft this this life and um we would live it and we would be very happy um but like that again like like dogs and cats that like cats want to like you know enter the zoom screen or dogs want to bark at a squirrel when they didn't bark at the six squirrels we walked by you know a block ago um you know having to learn to like celebrate the lack of control that that comes with communing with others um is difficult but also like room for celebration but I think this poem is like kind of having to come to terms with that in a way that maybe sounds more grief stricken um that hopefully by the end of the collection begins to like become more hopeful and filled with potential um how that question <laughs> I well I resonated with the 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 grief and the slight bit of frustration was like what mm. What I did all the things though, like I did all the right things, and and it's still the, somebody moved the queen though. Right, right. When I wasn't looking, which isn't fair, because because I wasn't here. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I relate to that like idealist Pisces thing, like just the and it kind of creeps up on you even when like you're aware of it. It's still like, oh, I was, I was doing that thing again. I was doing the thing where I thought that I could just impose my perfect idea on this situation and that everybody would just stay in place and then when I had to take a break or had to do something else everyone would just freeze in place and it'd be fine and then I could right, come back right. which is like yeah when I had, I had the moment of realization too like wow that's not that's not how how entities outside of your body work whether it's a tree or a cat or a partner like it's just not how they operate that's <laughs> not in any way how they operate <laughs> And it's like, this should be an obvious conclusion of adulthood. And yet, <laughs> nope. Yeah. It's yeah. Not. So I had to laugh at myself like, uh-huh. I totally did the chessboard relationship thing too. And then was real upset when it didn't work. And it's like, what? <laughs> why would I have thought that worked at all? <laughs> so um, uh, I uh, loved also this. Um, this is uh, something also about relationships just the the whole thing about relationships the the whole plumb line through line all of the things so uh i'm not going to use the word juicy that's trivializing it's <laughs> deep like it's just i learned so much i don't say that usually 
uh with poetry i'm like i'm immersed and i am it's it's not an escape really but it's like a immersion into this world that i'm i love and i'm so familiar with here i like learned so much like oh that's i do think that like i learned about myself which that i think is i mean uh that's one of the reasons people write is it not to 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 teach hear from the poem where we go from here the line is what once coded love now codes fraught oh like and my question that arose from reading that was why do relationships so often seem to go south even as love remains like they go south for reasons other than we don't love each other anymore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's confounding to me like, yeah, just, yeah. like what what do you think about like how how does this happen why does this happen yeah and, and I think um you know there are two like uh I think these can be momentary moments like uh, momentary moments these can be like momentary shifts in in um fraughtness or um or like high moments of love right like it's just to me it's so amazing how a symbol of like an omelet in a pan, for example, um, from the poem, um, like can be a moment of care. And then if like you just change one contextual detail, it's gone cold, it's gone burnt, it's gone whatever. That that same image, that same gesture suddenly just kind of begins to to turn. And yet if you then go ahead and add another contextual moment of like that person can't cook for shit, that burnt omelet suddenly once again means an incredible moment of love, right? That like it, it's like again I think I think it's just I'm stunned by like people and um I'm just stunned by people and and their abilities to interpret and um contextualize and shape images um and how images map onto a relationship whether that be friendship family or um romantic relationships um there's just such power in the ways we act upon those not just images, because obviously the omelet in the poem is an image, um, but objects themselves, right? Um, they valence so quickly. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of that idea of love, I think, I think it shows what you were asking earlier about like how relationships can turn south, even though love is maintained. I think it just goes to show how powerful a feeling love is, you know, whether that's romantic love or familial love, because obviously, you know, going back to the disability thing, there was a period where that relationship um, with my family, um, I don't know if I want to say turned south, but became more fraught, became more complex because of um, certain family dynamics. And that didn't mean there was any less love going on there. And if anything, the love was um, the thing holding us together. Um, but that love is that that strengthener and whether the relationship is in its healthiest mode or not healthiest mode, um, that's like a dial you can turn around this like um, centrifugal force of, of love and care. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> this is why I wish we could like do a podcast on each of your poems because man, <laughs> just, I just have like a little door. I'm like, well, this seems interesting. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's, uh, one of the things that I, I found that, um, and you have, uh, talked about this, uh, already too, is, um, you know, yes, there are moments of grief, there are moments of, uh, difficulty and struggle, but that the collection doesn't actually end there. It doesn't leave the reader in those, in the, in the grief wallowing for, you know, all time there's this, uh, and there's uh, a moment and I, I don't know if there's an exact turning 
in a particular poem, but if there was one, I would, I've identified it in a poem called From Hope Chest, or this line is from the poem Hope Chest. And the, um, the line that jumped out at me is the, it goes to reveal the hope would be to reveal what is not yet done. And that is amazing to me. That is a, uh, it's, it's close to a definition of hope. It's what, what we haven't solidified in action yet. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on hope and how that, how that plays out in relationships and what, uh, what do we, what do we do when, when we have hope and we're not like, this is like, it's like, is that the thing before the action and that, and then what happens after the action? Yeah. I mean, so, so this poem, um, was born fr from, uh, so this is kind of the funniest backstory. So my mother, I mean, as the, the poem says, bought me a hope chest. It was like from, uh, a family friend or something like that. Um, and she, kind of was careful to explain to me that a hope chest um, was this object that traditionally a woman was given as she was going to marry someone. Um, and it held like her like, you know, linens and, um, you know, dining cloths and all that, you know, like bougie stuff that you have to be like a good housewife to like entertain and all of that. And, um, and excuse me, my dog is squeaking a toy in the background right now. Um, Love it um <laughs> animals but, crawl throughout the poem they crawl throughout the interview yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> um but yeah so so she was like very um it was almost uh because I was moving in with my partner at this point as well right she she's buying me this hope chest we're moving in together um etc and and she almost felt like it was I mean the, the the vibe she was giving me was she felt like it was taboo or like it not not that she thought cohabitating was taboo um you know but she thought giving me the hope chest before we were married, um, which we are not married. Um, I'm, you know, we're still the same, the same person, but we are not married. Um, but anyway, she felt like it was this, like, um, I don't know, like she's not a superstitious person, but it felt like the closest I have seen her get to superstition. Um, so anyway, I was really fascinated by her obsession with the function of this piece of furniture, um, and kind of its lore, which is like, there's an epigraph from a lane furniture advertisement, that reads the chances of a marriage ending in the divorce court doubled when the bride has no hope chest. Um, so there was like this very intense, like cultural conception of how much hope chests like were a part of the marriage ritual and all of that stuff. Um, so the line to reveal the hope would be to reveal what is not yet done kind of um, like maps onto the fact that we were moving in together without marriage, given that hope chests had such a deep tie to like marriage traditions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right, right? Like hope implies, um, so it's an interesting name for the chest, right? And I think probably in its best conception, the hope chest like hopes for a good marriage, right? Like that's where it's like trying to um, come into play kind of thing. Um, but I think it also has a certain implication of um, or, or, or certain indicator that, yeah, the, the marriage is not yet done. The act is not yet done. And, and which rests in the word hope as well, because again, to hope for something is to hope or is to desire that thing to occur imminently, right? Um, or maybe not imminently, but in, in some tangible future, I'll say. Um, yeah, so I, I think I'm, I'm kind of like circumventing the question, but that's sort of where that line came from. Was this literal sense of my mom being like, shh, don't tell him what it's for. <laughs> like, and it actually, it's sitting right behind me. It's got a lot of plants on it right now, but it's sitting right behind me. Um, it's from like the 60s. Um, and it's a cedar line chest and it's great. I love the piece. Um, and I told him, of course, I told him what it was about. Um, 
yeah so that's sort of where that poem was born from and like I think it maps on to like the obsession the book has with like the house structure and like different architectural features not the furniture or strictly architecture but I do think that there is some sort of intersection between the the weight of that feature along with like the weight of like a widow's walk which is like a later poem that um thinks about how this architectural feature outlines the relationship between a woman and her like man out at sea kind of thing um that there are these design structures for domestic spaces <laughs> that kind of harp on um heterosexual relationship expectations <laughs> my gosh oh I love it and I I mean yeah it's basically like well the, the reason hope ends when action is taken is because you it's not like oh I'm hopeless it's like no I received the thing right right that yeah I was hoping for yeah um and that yeah that's just like reveal what is not yet done I just that was that was because I feel like I grapple with, well, when I say, oh, I hope for this, or I'm I'm hoping for that, there's so many layers and connotations of that word, but this is just a very, like a very pure, like I just imagined a child like waiting before Christmas, before they could go down and <clears throat> get all their presents from under the tree. um, Like just so hopeful and like, uh, oh, they haven't opened their presents yet. So that was... um. I, and I could, I could really see the, I could see the hope chest. Yeah. It, did, it did feel a little bit like, I don't know, like, I don't want to jinx it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Again, my mother is not a superstitious person, but that hope chest is the closest I've ever get, seen her get to superstition. That's so funny. Oh, that's so, the traditions that we have and gosh, that just what gets passed down, like people are. I remember my grandmother being very attached to this one thing that we would do on Christmas. Um, but we never knew why we just did it. And she never knew why, cause it had been passed down and wow. now it matters because it's been passed down. Right, we, don't, right. we don't know where it came from or what it even is really what it means, but it's like, well, if we stop now, we don't know how far this goes back so far. We, no one know, no one alive knows what it means, and we won't. We can't be the ones to kill it. No. Great, great, great. Um, um. Oh my gosh. Okay, this one. Huh. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, this this line is from Hole in a Barn Door Quilt. For there is a hole in almost everything useful. How else do you get in? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So I realize, I realize it's a metaphor. Mm. So if this is stretching it too far, uh, let me know. Sometimes I, I do go there. Mm -hmm. how, how do the holes get there in everything useful? Interesting. Um, it's okay, pup. Sorry. My, my pup's getting a little bit anxious. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. So again, I think I'm going to tell a story about how the poem came about and maybe yes. we'll get back to your, back to your question. Yes. Um, had this whole, series of um quilt poems that didn't make it into the book this is i think the only quilt poem i think that makes it into the book um but um basically there are like if, if you're not, not i am not a quilter but i was doing research into this because like domestic shit you know clearly is the shit of this book is like that. Yes. um and um yeah there are uh tons and tons of patterns like fox and the geese quilt and arrow so I'm going to butcher it, arrow something or other. Um, there are all these very set patterns for quilts. Um, 
and not that you have to only abide by those, but they are very classic and, and very like kind of like archetypes for, for quilts. Um, and uh, this hole in the barn door um, is like a, a pattern. Um, it's not like a, a phrase that I um, invented. Um, but um, I, I think it, the idea of it stems, I mean, I, I, this is, and this goes beyond this poem. This actually happened after this poem. I do have a habit of like taking in animals or like being on the lookout for like animals in need of a home. Um, like there was a point living in Mississippi where I had, I have, I have of, my, of our, of our animals, we have two dogs and a cat. Um, in Mississippi, I was caring for an extra two dogs and a cat um, due to, uh, yeah, just, just unfortunate um, over uh, populations mm-hmm. of shelters and all of that. But um, so I think there was this like tension between us because as much as my partner is an animal person, like there is a reality that you can't like take every animal in. Um, and so again, I think a lot of these poems like tend toward a mystical, like abs- not abstraction, but mystical plane above the reality, but there is like very much a real, a real moment. Um, but the whole and everything useful, I mean, I think it like became very literal um, or like I thought of it as very literal. I mean, like this sweater I'm wearing has a hole in the neck, right? Um, like this is going to get like maybe dark. And this is where like, I think the book is trying to interrogate um, the patriarchy and like inherited um, concerns about the female body but the female body in relation to a heterosexual relationship has a hole like and has multiple holes that are like being used sexually and like sometimes those are empowered and sometimes those are not and so that hole is trying to work through a lot of different um yeah different um I don't want to say exploitations but you know it's kind of meant to be a sassy line back at this speaker or 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 back at the audience's speaker speaking to of like well duh like there's a hole in almost everything useful right like look at myself kind of thing um and so it's trying to push back against um what i think is often seen like again in inherited patriarchal senses of the female body as like a weakness as actually a point of power and like purpose in a very like not used way if that makes sense i love that I felt a little, I felt a little more healed after I read that line. Um, mm. and I didn't quite know why. So I read the poem again. Um, mm. and I was like, okay, well, literally, yes. I mean, there's a hole in houses, right? You, right. You can't get in a house unless there's a hole in the wall called a door. Yeah. Uh, and I hadn't thought about the, the clothing, but yep. Sweaters are not useful if they don't have head holes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like, I then thought, I wonder, is it the hole that makes the thing useful? Because, yeah, and it's like, and then it totally, it totally subverts this idea for me that um, this like healedness means wholeness with a W. Like you mm. have no leaks, you're totally self-contained. You don't need, not that you don't need other people. We all are aware of how much we need other people. Uh, I would hope after the last, yeah, you yeah. have become aware of that, but just this like we don't have any weaknesses at all and it just very ever so subtly like it it's not in your face it is it is sort of a sass back but it's definitely not in your face and it itself is kind of a hole because I like crawled into the poem in that line and was like <laughs> oh there are so many wow so many rooms that I could go in mm-hmm. in this particular poem and the hole in almost everything useful how else do you get in is the line that got there um 
and yeah, it is a sort of a reclamation of what has been conceptualized as broken or weak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, no, that's the thing that makes it useful because right. things you can't access are not useful. Right. And and I want to like also, so, so obviously the house for sure. And I, I should have probably yeah. mentioned because obviously that like plugs into like the overall like theme and structure of the book. Um, but yeah, like, and, and, you know, I don't want utility to become a, a point of, uh, not ridicule, but yeah, absolutely. There's an empowerment in that utility. That's, that's where the, the poem is, is working to go, not in terms of exploitation for sure. Yes. 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 Utility, not exploitation. Um, there's a couple of lines from the poem on my mother's recent heart attack. This poem, like I could just quote the whole poem, um, (laughs) that I loved the one, there's one that starts, I'm like, which one do I read first? Um, (laughs) the, I'll pick this one. There's that bit of kitsch home is where the heart is, but I understand the heart as a home Mm -hmm. or even as a house. So that was interesting because um, so many things about that. Uh, There's another subversion of order here that I picked up. um, Usually, at least in in my experience, we elevate home above house. And because, oh, the house is the building, but the home is the people or whatever concept that is. Mm. Here, it's switched a little bit. The heart as a home or even a house. And so that makes the heart do different work mm-hmm. I think um then what is expected and um that's why this line grabbed me was like a home or even a house whoa oh um so w- what is it that makes a heart and what is it that makes a heart a house <laughs> yeah I, I think we're um because it's like we, we mentioned earlier about like the hope chest and the widow's box structure um this book is so and, and even you know how, you know uh how else do you get in you know everything useful has a whole um this book is very concerned with structure um and so i think the idea of conceiving of the heart not as a subtraction um but as this very compartmentalized um space that houses things like your blood um um is and and you know ventricles and and all of, I mean I am not a biology person as you can probably tell as my vocabulary is waning but right these there are cavities inside of that organ um that feel um you know cavernous especially when you're on the kind of pins and needles of um not knowing if your mother is going to survive um or live terribly long even after she survived this heart attack which spoiler alert she's doing really well you know She's, that was gonna she, be my next question. Yeah, yeah, she she's doing great. Um, but um, but yeah, so I, I think it's um again trying to I think a lot of this poem is trying to move away from the heart as this um cultural abstraction and more toward it as this physical um occupier of your body. Occupier sounds kind of gross, but this physical resident of your body that has um rooms and and cavities. Um that serve a a function and um but also like not to entirely move away from that sense of abstraction still wanting to um commune with it as 
maybe a locus of love or something like that, especially given the um, kind of um, precarious sense of, of near grief um, that um, the poem was exploring in kind of the trauma of like going through a major medical emergency with a loved one. Yeah. And that emergency being pertaining to your house, like if you, a lot of times we live in our hearts, like metaphorically, but also physically, like we, we actually can't live without the heart and that, um, the, the, I've heard heart waves are more powerful or they go out farther than brain waves. Like, Oh, interesting. Like double. I think six feet is how far the heart wave goes out yeah. Three feet, uh, for the brain waves. So people people can synchronize with others' hearts sooner than they can with brains. Um, and like, especially with going back to horses, right? Like yeah. horses can like tell heart rate. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I totally forgot about that too. Yeah, and that horses. That's the one of the things that they'll measure when they're mm-hmm. like, do I trust this human? Will I let this human on? Or are we gonna take advantage of this human? Are they scared right now? Like, yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. Like, am I going to dominate? Am I going to magnify the fear? Is there fear to me? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, And this this line actually goes right into what we were talking about, too, uh, serendipitously. Um, This is also from On My Mother's Recent Heart Attack. Uh, I am painful, excuse me, I am painfully aware of the relationship between my blood and my breath, my mother and myself. Mm. So just that little M dash there, it's like, wow, the parallels between blood and breast and mother and self, mm. which seems like that just is a, I mean, to me, and obviously prenatal reference, but then like that extends kind of through the rest of life, it seems. Mm. There's just that powerful. So this is a theme that comes up in almost every one of my interviews, mother's mm mothers um (laughs) so talk about let's talk about our mothers and maybe like how becoming mothers changes our relationship to our own mothers I mean I don't have the experience of being a mother but um I'm watching my sister um raise raise a child and watching that interaction and how that's changed like how my mother becoming a grandmother has changed her um in ways that I think being a mom what wouldn't have didn't it didn't um and of course, I didn't know my mother before I was born, obviously, but so I don't know who she was before. So, but just this, like, we are intricately, this line to me says we're intricately tied to our mothers, kind of regardless of the relationship we have with them, it seems. And I'd yeah. love to hear, like, especially, you know, your your relationship with your mother, however much or little you want to share there, but um, just this, and this experience of like, a heart your mother having a heart attack and how that uh has impacted your yeah your writing and you're just thinking about yourself even yeah absolutely and and i realize i should have brought this poem up in relation to our conversation about um disability because i think it definitely mm-hmm. changed mother's relationship to her own body um i wouldn't necessarily say she's someone who qualifies as disabled by any means um but i think there is uh a recalibration of her relationship with her body that seems in line with like disability studies for sure. Um, yeah. And um, th- th- this didn't make it into this poem, but um, I've tried to write an essay about it and, and we'll see if I can go, go back to it um, and revisit it after a CNF workshop. Um, but what's interesting about the occasion for this poem as well is this occurred um, 
the day that um, we arrived in town in Champaign the first time um, in 2016, when I moved here for my MFA, and she was supposed to fly up the day or two after something like that to come help us unpack um, oh. in the house, right? Um, which I think is where like, quietly this poem like felt important to this manuscript even if this um even if this whole vignette didn't make it into the poem um but it was this like very surreal experience of like being so far away from this like medical crisis of like someone I'm very close to like to speak to the relationship we're very very close so similar sometimes we can get at each other's throats but you know very close um because of that um and it was just this very difficult moment of trying to put together a house when she was supposed to be there to put it to help me like place dishes and um you know decide on like a rug at Tuesday morning which is now a dated reference because Tuesday morning is you know may she rest in peace as a store um um uh and so it almost became tough for me in the moment with my partner and his and his family his his father and grandmother very kindly came up to help us as well um but I couldn't I couldn't engage with it until I went down um to to see her um and so I think th this poem was written kind of feverishly um if you couldn't tell based off how like erratic it is um and it and it didn't really change all that much from um when I wrote it, um, pretty, pretty shortly after coming, basically I, after settling in the house as much as I could engage with it, I flew down a couple of days after she got out of the hospital, which she wasn't in the hospital that terribly long. It was, you know, only a couple of days itself. So maybe like a week after we drove up from Florida to Illinois, flew down there and, um, you know, was there to, um, be there for, um, you know, follow-up appointment and, be there where she had like the external defibrillator because she did not get a pacemaker installed which she's very grateful for um all of that um but yeah it was it was a it was very strange timing and i think that also was a reason why the blue house became such an emotionally resonant space um it just it was charged almost immediately because of the significance of moving with a partner for the first time, the significance of almost losing like a major parental figure, um, that it just became like a frenetic space, even after she became incredibly stable and, you know, is, is had hip replacements since. And, you know, you know, she's been, you know, living life and like, you know, doing things to improve, you know, life as bones decay because of osteoarthritis and all of that. Um, so yeah, I think I've strayed from your question now. <laughs> No, I mean, really, these questions are just jumping off points. And it's like, wherever yeah. they go, they go. Because uh, poetry's not, poetry's sort of like a cat. Like, it does whatever it wants. <laughs> no boundaries, is liquid. Uh, will show up whenever, or not. Um, yeah. <laughs> will lacerate your face if you pet it wrong. Anyways. Um, uh, yeah, no, I love it. I And yeah, gosh, just every time that um, we get a little window into each of these poems, it's like, I, if I feel like I am reading the collection all over again, mm. like, cause I didn't, I knew the blue house was significant. And now, cause I'm going to go back and reread this collection now that I know mm. all of that was like, this is real. It's a real house. It felt real. I was like, this, you characterize that house very well, but it's like <laughs> it was in immediate proximity to the, um, heart attack I mean those are those are very like they look scary on the page and it's like 
wow, that was fused together now. Um, and I just love, um, I'm going to just, I'm going to read this line. It's from the poem Mother in the context of everything we just talked about. Uh, I'm just going to read this because I love it so much. And then I'm going to let you say whatever you want to say about it, because I, which is probably what I should have been doing this whole time, um, <laughs> because I just get, I've gotten like, we've gone into the mansions of each of these poems <laughs> through the whole and almost everything useful, which it is the, these lines. So from the poem mother it says my mother measures success by proclaiming she, she could do it in high heels, carve a Thanksgiving Turkey in three inch stilettos, climb a ladder to change a light bulb, try it in dictionary thick platforms, knock down a hornet's nest, only in T-straps, all the better for fleeing the angry stings. I would love to hear whatever you want to say in response <laughs> or in relation to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think in a, a, a certain sense, it goes um, back to the earlier things you were talking about um, earlier in our conversation on silly mm -hmm. the, the collection of um, kind of reclaiming um, femininity, the feminine body, the domestic as um, sources of empowerment. Um, and so if you can do it in these like devices that I, I could go down a rabbit hole here that like yeah. actually men wore high heels first and then women wore high heels, right? So they're not actually like strictly feminine. They actually do have masculine origins, but uh, that's probably for a rainier day. Um, Same with long hair, yeah. 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 Um, but in our, in our contemporary conceptions of high heels, right. They are like coded feminine. Um, and, um, I think that's, um, I think this book is also interested in inheritances. Um, mm. um, just something like my current project is like particularly interested in, but, um, uh, yeah, like ways to, I mean, obviously the book pushes back against certain inheritances against, you know, patriarchal notions of the body or patriarchal notions of the way the domestic oppresses. Um, but it also works to celebrate um, more positive inheritances, more productive inheritances. And I think this is one of those, even though the poem, you know, towards its end, um, maybe does again, circle back to the, the body in a um, moment of disability or in a kind of temporary state of dealing with disability where um you know she has to acknowledge that she has a different relationship as a result of the necrotic tissue um resulting from the heart attack that she um is not the same body she once was and she has to like it's not that I, I don't want to say like oh you have to like be gentle with yourself but she has to like understand her body differently um in relation uh to this this like traumatic event um and that's not a weakness that's just um a reality she has to face so um i think in some ways it's in the poem a point of pride and pride tending toward vanity because there's this line later uh, my mother's a therapist um and so um shortly after um her heart attack she was going back into the office and she would always you know cross her legs like a lady right like you like you know the queen like you can't have your legs uncrossed when you're wearing a skirt kind of thing um, but she realized she couldn't, she couldn't do that because of the blood thinners, she would get like a very big bruise by crossing her ankles or her thighs. Um, and so the, the poem, um, let me see if I can find, uh, yeah, the, the a start, good starting point it reads a lemon wheel of home, but as much as she calls to check on me, my sleep, my cat with red gums, the warmth of my house, these calls are for me to hear her listen for short breath. 
her solution to her bruising, something about uncrossing her legs so one leg doesn't weigh down on the other thigh and leave a purple gulf she seeks to hide. And so that gulf is like the bruise that um, is resulting from the blood thinner. So it's like very regular day-to-day activity that's being forever changed by, now mind you, she's on much lower doses of, of blood thinners. And so now she can cross her legs all she wants. And it's like, you know, a newfound um, pastime. But um, but yeah, she had to kind of totally understand her body differently. So I do think this poem is both dealing with disability in ways that I hadn't fully thought of before, but um, but also dealing with um, thinking about femininity. I mean, I think femininity is always empowering, but working to highlight that in a generation that it may not have been as clearly. Um, yeah. Yes. That reminds me of uh, when I was taking one of the disability studies classes in um for the MSW program, the Masters of Social Work, mm-hmm. uh, was that disability is the only minority group that anybody could join at any moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, one day all of us will because right. death is the ultimate disability. So but that, <laughs> even if it's temporary, like yeah. that's that's what that's the only one too where you can like temporarily be in it and then not. And then you can go back and not like that. And just, gosh, I remember that bruising line. And I was like, it, just do heart attacks make you bruise more easily? Like, which makes sense to me. But just this like, wow, crossing your legs could bruise them. Mm-hmm. Oh, like that is that kind of I had to do some recalibration of like, my gosh, I mean, just all the downstream effects of what you think is like, oh, this is the heart located here. But no, your whole your whole being, which of course, if your heart's affected emotionally, your whole being is affected. So why would that not be true physically? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, this is okay. So I have only two more questions, not because uh, I've run out of questions. In fact, I have um, doubled my list of questions and could talk to you <laughs> all night. Um, but for the sake of time um, and to give our audience time here to digest all of this and go get the book so that you then can know all of what we're talking about. Um, well, technically three questions. One, where can people find you? Where can they get the book? Which I will also put in the show notes. Uh, so let's do that one first. Where can people find you, your writing? Uh, where can they like, do you have a newsletter to sign up for when you have new books or new things published? Um, is there yeah website or um, getting, how can we get uh, any of the, any of your books, <laughs> Fool in a Blue House um, or any, any of the other ones um, that have or will come out in the future? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, I am not so fancy as to have a newsletter. Um, but I do have a website, um, which is Catherine-Gaffney.com. Um, my, um, chap and my book are available on Amazon and, um, definitely my chap is on bookshop as well, which I would, um, prefer yep. to use bookshop. Bookshop is great. Um, and I'm pretty sure my full length collection is on bookshop. Um, actually I know it is, but I don't think the cover is visible on it. So don't like mm-hmm. be um, led astray if like the cover image at least last I checked the cover yeah. image wasn't on there um and um or you can go directly to publishers if that's your jam as well um finishing line press published the chap um which does have poems um from this collection and then um university of tampa um press um published full in a blue house so i think that, were those the questions where to get the books where to connect i guess did you want social media handles too yeah if you have them if you'd like to share them if you want people to reach out and connect with you that way um yeah that'd be awesome yeah um so i'm probably most active on instagram in terms of social media which is 
kind of a long one and it doesn't have to do with the book, which is proving to be a problem because people are like, oh, I couldn't find you. And I'm like, it's kind of a more, I mean, I guess I do post things about the book, but it's more of like a personal, which you're welcome to follow. It's public. Um, but it's um, sailing underscore over underscore a underscore cardboard underscore C. Um, <laughs> I will have to like it. Put it um, sailing over a cardboard C is what the, the handle is with underscores. Okay. And, sure. um, and then, um, and that's like a, a 1940s song. I was very into Lindy Hop when I made my Instagram handle and I've just never changed it. Um, and yeah, it's great. I love Lindy Hop. I miss it. I haven't been in part of it in a long, long time, but that's another story for another day. Um, and then my, my, I guess, X handle now, it's not Twitter any longer. I don't really know. Um, but is at over underscore poetry. Um, but I am definitely not terribly active on Twitter because I have not figured out their algorithms and feel like I'm communicating with aliens sometimes when I post on on Twitter so <laughs> true story true story I relate I have no idea what's going on on Twitter anymore yeah yeah if I ever did so yeah excellent I will include all of these links in the show notes as well for people to click on get the books um and so that you will have an you your uh experience of this conversation will be even more enriched um <laughs> all right final question before I uh invite you to read a poem is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have oh gosh I mean this has been um a really lovely conversation and I feel like it's been um really holistic in um uh the way it's dealt with the book I, I guess the last thing I would think about which I think touched on the mother stuff is I think and I think we mentioned the word grief but I think this book is also interested in um kind of marking grief in ways um we deal with grief both and, and reclaiming grief both in terms of actual loss and then also kind of the anxiety of loss or anticip anticipation of loss um which i think sometimes can get um forgotten about as as a legitimate feeling because it's like oh well, they're not they're not gone yet or you know everything's fine but it's like there's this awareness that still reverberates in the body over the potential um or the precarity of that person in your life and so um i think that that's something else the book is interested in um interrogating excellent uh my listeners will be familiar with the theme of grief that seems to find its way to me as well which is probably because <laughs> i don't shy away from it as i see our culture doing not to blame anyone but our culture has a tough time with this with this concept and i am very glad to to give it a platform as well um so to close out uh our conversation today hopefully just with a semicolon not a period mm -hmm. uh will you read the horse this is an amazing poem yeah um yeah and i'll i'll preface it as well um with uh my my thesis mentor um michael madonic uh this was his favorite poem and um he passed away last year um, oh. and, um yeah uh so it feels very special to have this poem pointed out and to read it out loud for you all uh, so this one's for mike the horse the horse was born from a carousel she tore off one morning when the man the one who took the tickets smoked a cigarette and nursed a plastic plastic cup of coffee Rain saturated her freedom. This birth is anything but. No mother to lick the baby clean. No knock-kneed moments as baby works to balance. She tore from the rods that held her in up-down motion. Kicked her rump high and back. 
then rocked back on hind legs to punch the air, her eyes begging for battle. How she found me is a story for another time, but I can say her head was always near mine. Resistance to law, docility, but how to say she honors. I had to tell you she teaches me to hold on, to bear what is her greatest kindness. How her sonless birth helped me break what it meant to feel the facade of control and then to gain it for a moment. Let me feel, echoed by the roar of her high tail, she taunts with love to get on, to learn her body, mine. Wow. It's even more powerful in your voice. <laughs> I, I did cry the first time I read it, not gonna lie. Um it's hard for me to read now too, because uh not to like speak of more grief, but uh my horse has since passed away as well. So it's a it's a tough poem to I love it. I love it. And I'm glad I have it of her, but um yeah, it holds it holds two dear ones in its pages that were not a source of grief when it was written. So it's amazing too. Speaking of changing yeah. circumstances of omelets and pans and all of that whole <laughs> Poems can change in really stunning ways your relationships to them over time. That's and that's amazing how much power it had even before those mm. uh, those losses. Um because yeah. when when it stood out to me and was like, this is one I gotta ask for um mm. voice, I I had no idea about the circumstance. I just was like I the image of the carousel and the horse jumping away was so vivid like so bright and then mm -hmm. just the wow she that was her birth she didn't have this nor she was not part this horse was not part of this normal life cycle and what kind of disorientation would that bring mm -hmm. um just that's what that's what grabbed me was like no knobby knees and that like having seen baby horses like that is the thing <laughs> that's so the thing that everyone who sees a baby horse is like yeah they're they're like these giant things yeah, that little fuck. like eight balls or something out there in the middle of their legs yeah oh, <laughs> oh love it i love it there's it's so precious like each animal has like a precious thing about it that for baby horses it's their knees yeah, yeah. And it's like this horse didn't have that oh. <laughs> what um just this, like like primordial experience of horses mm -hmm. um, yeah absolutely does that make her less of a horse or what like so i just went off on all that so um it is an amazing amazing poem as are all of these i uh promised i wasn't gonna fangirl and this very <laughs> difficult to do so <laughs> i will um i will just uh yeah I'll remind our our listeners here uh that you can find um the you can find out more about Catherine about the books and um for some some maybe not writing related fun I mean that's kind of how my Instagram is too I don't understand Instagram at all so I mostly like creep on other people's Instagram so that's <laughs> what I think it's for um that's fine uh you I will put the all of that in the show notes uh as well so you can easily find Fool in a Blue House um which is the book that we focused on um and uh and you can go directly to the publisher too i think um if you want i'll make sure that i find where all of those are put those in the show notes for you all uh thank you so so much for joining me today catherine and then the next time that you um publish another book uh definitely let me know so that we can have you back <laughs> It was truly my honor. Thank you so much, Megan, for for um, hosting me. Um, it's definitely been a weird road 
trying to get my voice out there and um, invite people to read the book. And I say invite in the most gentle, genuine way. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. So I really appreciate just the, um, I want to say platform. That makes it sound like I'm doing something important. Um, the the opportunity, uh, like a platform, I mean, because like if, if I was like advocating for like change in some way, I would say platform, right? But like, I'm just like, reading some poems and don't get me wrong. I love reading poems and I think poems yeah. can change. Absolutely. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's been an honor to have this conversation and thank you for your generosity with engaging with the poems. I mean, it's just, it means so much to have people just spend time with them and be affected by them. That's just, that's all I can ask for. So thank you for communing with them. That's really what it was. It was for sure. Um, a communion. I felt, um, there was a, a, a kind of a, a personality in each poem that mm-hmm. uh, that has stayed with me and it is uh it is a weird road you have solidarity with me on that uh as as writers we all we want is to share what what we feel and what we know with uh the world so i am so happy to be able to um get uh get the, that opportunity to uh, other writers as well so uh thank you again and um i am so excited to have you back when your next book comes out <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the New Books of Poetry as part of the New Books Network. Have a good night, y'all.